Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. I am Beth Shank, host of the podcast, along with our guest host, Dr. Shanda Demarest, who is interviewing faculty members and educators from the School of Nursing Climate Commitment. In this final episode of the series, Shanda interviews Dr. Daniel Smith, faculty at Villanova University. It is a lively conversation discussing challenges and solutions. Enjoy! Hey everyone, Shanda Demarest here, guest host for the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast, our special series featuring Nurses Climate Challenge School of Nursing Commitment faculty. Um, I'm already like smiling and laughing thinking about this next conversation uh, with Dr. Daniel Smith. Dr. Smith is the Wine Garden endowed assistant professor at Villanova University's M. Louise Fitzpatrick College of Nursing. Uh, Daniel researches health impacts of environmental exposures. He's currently investigating heat-related illness first aid in the migrant farm worker population. Um, and he's also getting into understanding local patterns of lead exposure and, and other environmental exposures in the Latinx community of Norristown, which is in Pennsylvania. Um, so he is a rapidly developing, expanding environmental health nursing researcher. And by the way, he's a nurse practitioner. Um, on top of all of this. So my convo with Daniel, ugh, he's just so fun. Um, I learned about extreme heat in agricultural and urban communities, some really surprising populations uh, facing extreme heat illness. So listen into that. Um, Daniel and I bonded over our rural upbringings, uh, him in the southeastern part of the U.S., me in the Midwest. We we nerded out over strategies for communicating and educating health professional students about climate change and and how to help get these folks, you know, introduced to enough despair to hold it in the you know and hold it in their minds and their hearts, but also how to help get folks out of that despair um, with with positive energy and ideas for for how to take action. Um, Daniel and I also postulated about the de-evolution of our species, which is, is super interesting. Um, colleagues, Lisa Thompson, Ruth McDermott-Levy showed up in the chat. Stacey Abrams, Ben Shapiro, uh, really interesting stuff. Um, so, so Dr. Daniel Smith, he is a rising star. He is sure to inform national care practices for climate change harm reduction. And I'm totally convinced that Smith's solutions will be delivered in innovative, compelling, and provocative ways. So thanks for listening, everybody. I hope the holiday season is good to you. Um, stay warm, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you next time. Dr. Daniel Smith, good morning, good afternoon, good to see you. Yeah, no, good to see you too. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. I've been super stoked to talk to you. You're an interesting cat. And um, I I was 
like doing my investigation before we got online today. And I have been following you on Twitter from the Nurses Climate Challenge account, but I'll say like peripherally. And today I really, I did a deep dive and I was like, oh my God. Daniel's hilarious. This is going to be so fun. Oh, my Twitter. I love my Twitter. It gets me in trouble. Um, I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, I don't have a filter. And I have definitely, like, I remember whenever I was in grad school, they, right whenever COVID happened, and, you know, everyone was wanting nurses, like, free labor for everything. Uh Uh-huh we as grad students were getting asked to go volunteer for the university to do vaccinations of students and all these other things, testing, and they weren't paying us. They weren't even like giving us clinical hours for it. Um, And I posted on Twitter about it and me and one of the professors in the PhD program, we were having a pretty good conversation. And then I started getting emails from associate deans being like, why are you saying this? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you're, you're still whispering about it. Like a couple of years. I know, later. I know. I'm still like, I'm like faculty and I've moved on and it's still, I'm like, oh God, I'll get in trouble on Twitter at some point at Villanova too, I'm sure. But <laughs> <laughs> I love your style. Um, we'll get back to, to some of the things that have certainly compelled me that I've unearthed on there even recently. Um, but anyway, total mad respect for that approach. But so, so you're at Villanova, uh, which is in Philly, right? But, but you're an Atlanta boy, like, give me a quick little backstory there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I'm originally from Harmony, North Carolina. Okay. I grew up on a dairy farm. A lot of people do not know that about me. Um, and that's really, it's really growing up on the farm where my interest and respect for the environment came from. But I knew that I did not want to work on a farm or live on a farm for the rest of my life. So went to Charlotte, undergrad at UNC Charlotte, got a degree in biology and Spanish, a dual major, did some environmental toxicology research with oysters, and then was like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And got into nursing, went to Emory for nursing, got my BSN, did my PhD, NP combined there, and then got done. And I was like, oh, Lord, what? (laughs) now I've got to find a big boy job. So cast the net as far and wide as I could and unexpectedly, unsurprisingly, I don't know, I had um, worked with Lisa Thompson at Emory and she had constantly been telling me about this woman, Ruth McDermott Levy, that she got arrested with in DC and was like, you should work with her, you need to work with her, you need to work with her. And so one night I was kind of frantically at the end of my PhD applying for jobs and noticed that Villanova had an assistant professorship. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to apply for it. I don't have a postdoc. I've um, just finished this or I'm just finishing my PhD in a couple of weeks, applied for it, interviewed, really loved the, I don't know. I loved my Zoom conversations because it was in, I was applying during like the height of COVID where everything was online. Um, and you know, Zoom can be boring and you're just like, oh God, I don't really want to have an all day academic interview on Zoom. But then yeah. I did at Villanova and I was like, at the end of the day, I was like, oh shit, I actually enjoyed this. Um, and they offered me, I have an endowed assistant professorship, which is um, pretty cool. I don't have to worry about my salary for the next six years, just kind of get to develop as a scholar and teacher and clinician um, until I get tenure. And so I ended up here, moved north, I moved to Philly for a year 
or not even a year. I was there for like 11 months. And then um, I was like, you know, being from Atlanta, the urban areas of Atlanta, vastly different than the urban areas in the Northeast. Um, like the no parking in Philly was big for me, the not having central air in my house. I was like, oh God, I'm spoiled. So I recently moved to Wilmington. So Delaware is my new adventure, but we'll see if we like it or not. Oh, I I love several places that you just, just took us through there. First, starting with the dairy farming. Like I'm a rural kid from Minnesota. So I, mm. I feel you there. Um, and yeah, and just in the last few years moving around and, in, you know, investigating different places and seeing what it's like culturally and climactically you even referenced um i'm i'm super happy for you that you found a place to to camp out for now um great well yeah daniel you referenced uh you referenced a couple faculty members there too that i'll i'll just give a couple last names here for folks who might not be familiar so dr lisa thompson i actually talked to her I don't know, maybe a month ago for this podcast. Okay. So she teed Sorry. us up. Uh, Dr. Ruth McDermott Levy, where you are now. Um, she was a Charlotte Brody Award winner a couple years ago for, yeah, for some of her remarkable international sustainability and climate work. Yeah, we're, we're standing on the shoulders of, of giants. Um, and it's it's a small world but but growing really rapidly. So let's let's go a little bit down the um yeah, down the teaching path. So so I know you both from your role at Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments and the Climate Change Committee and your leadership there. But first, I, I met you when you were a PhD student at Emory and then got more and more into the, the climate education stuff. Um, and with Villanova, you're, you're now the faculty representative for the Nurses Climate Challenge, um, School of Nursing Commitment, doing the work to get this into your classroom and in front of students talk to me a little bit about yeah like how how you do that what are you serving them up how are students um coming to this content for you just share a couple yeah a couple thoughts a couple stories along those yes. lines no so it's really interesting you know i love being a nurse educator i would say it's probably one of my favorite things to do is to teach and there's really two ways that I have tried to attack teaching about the connection between climate change and health. And so I've done the whole traditional like didactic clinical role, like being a clinical instructor teaching in um, adult and geriatric health at Emory. And that is really just, you give a little sprinkle here and there, right? My research centers around chronic kidney disease of unknown etiology, which for those on the call that may not know what that is, it's a type of kidney disease that's been identified in agricultural workers globally um, due to working outside in the heat. And so these young men will be in their late 20s, early 30s, and they'll have end-stage renal disease. And it's like, well, how in the world did they develop end-stage renal disease? They don't have hypertension. They don't have diabetes. They don't have a history of taking nephrotoxic substances. And mm -hmm. it's the pre-renal acute kidney injury that they have every day at work that kills their kidneys. And then they need dialysis early. Uh. So, so it's, and that's what my dissertation was on. And so like clinically, like whenever you're teaching students about chronic kidney disease and 
all these other, you're going through all the body systems, you can just add a slide in that says, okay, this is how climate change and the environment impacts the kidneys. This is how it impacts the skin. If you think about prickly heat rash or pterygiums that people get from on their eyes from working in the sun, um, and you can just throw it in here or there. If you're teaching the courses like what I'm teaching at Villanova, I taught imperatives to global and public health this fall. And it was much more a central part of the course, right? Was talking about environment, environmental health, occupational health. Um, going like my students, um, some of them in the class didn't know who Greta Thunberg was. So introducing them to people in the field that are like on the ground, their age doing the work. So you get kind of this, you go from a slide to having like an entire lecture based on it. But I think it's a lot of fun. Um, and you get to see the students grow and they're like, oh, these are the things that we're seeing in our life. Like we've noticed that it's gotten hotter. We're not having this cold of winters and they get to see it play out of like, oh, this is how the climate is impacting our health in a way that they just don't typically think of. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love the make it local. I love the make it local. Well, and, and the other thing too, I mean, people listening to this are already picking this piece up, but you're, you're jamming. Like you were bringing energy to this work. You're stoked about it. You have real world examples. And I'm always of the camp that like, if you're boring, you've lost me. I, you know, I'm, I'm in my early thirties. I'm a millennial. Like, I, I don't know if it's a, you know, instant gratification piece, but my attention for it to be on you, you better be good in delivering content that I need and find relevant and applicable to my, either to my daily life or when I was practicing it as a nurse, like to the stuff that I was doing with patients every day. And, and Daniel, like our topics are depressing, sick people, injustice, destruction of the planet, death, like it's hard to bring this, bring this to folks in a way that's not totally going to inundate them and like put them in a place of debil debilitating fear or in a way that they're not necessarily digesting and just have to like compartmentalize and move on. I mean, as, as biological creatures, that's just sort of our natural tendency. So what I'm hearing you talk about is, you know, bringing the content, but also like, I'm curious, how are you strategic about some of these actual teaching modalities with super hard topics? How, like, what's the secret sauce? You, you just have to be, I think, upfront with the students, right? Because I, I very much hear what you're saying of like death and despair. And I even as like a researcher just have days that I'm like, oh, why am I doing this? We're all going to be burning alive by yeah. the time I die. Um, but I think you, you just have to be upfront and you're like, this is what sucks. This is what we have done to get here. This is what the, the people in power have done. And a lot of the students have never particularly, and I hate to generalize, but at the two private institutions that I've taught at, very privileged, and they come from this place of, well, we, we don't have to think about like hurricanes and not being able to evacuate from Georgia um, or not having central air or heat whenever it's cold outside. And so a lot of times it's just really putting them, even if you don't put them in in person face to face with someone who is less privileged it's showing the video showing the documentaries where people have highlighted um injustices that have happened but then always 
as dark as you can get with highlighting an injustice or you want to make students and other nurses even realize this is what the world is. It's not a nice place. Always wrapping and coming back, well, this is the good that has come out of this. And if you can connect it, and I think ending a class with the good that has happened in terms of, like we were talking about warming and cooling centers the other day, and people were, our students were asking, well, why doesn't the Department of Public Health here offer these warming centers? Um, because it's a lot of, it's been really interesting, and I would love if someone on this podcast can point me to resources, it seems to be more private institutions that are providing warming centers in Philly and Delaware. And so we were having this talk about, well, what like purpose does government serve? And should it, should it be providing these solutions? And then the students went out and they were like, okay, even though the government is not serving the people, here's how the people are serving the people. And it was really more of a grassroots kind of recognition that yes, even though things and systems suck and they're set up in ways to not take care of us, we can take care of one another. And I think it's always just remembering that there is good in all of this that helps kind of keep you from that, that despair and that existential dread that I have even. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Um, I appreciate that. And, and also sprinkling in maybe, you know, here's the good and here's how you can help contribute to the good. You know, here's yes. what it looks like, you know, when some of your peers could could engage in climate action or caring for folks that are experiencing, you know, these climate impacts, et cetera. Uh, you, you brought up a thought for me when, as you were talking about, um, you know, making, making it real for students and nurses. And in, in my role at Healthcare Without Harm, it's, it's primarily working with health systems to help them not only contribute to climate mitigation via decarbonizing their operations and the supply chain, but it's also like there's more and more momentum around this resilience slash adaptation piece all the time. And I was listening to um, of of all commentators, Ben Shapiro, actually, um, I, I, okay. I just like, you know, getting additional perspectives. And Shapiro brought up how evolutionarily we as human creatures like aren't super skilled at mitigating even little problems, but also like really big problems. We're not great at that. What we are extremely skilled at is adapting. And he posited that it's like it's probably the most beneficial characteristic, like perhaps what we are the best at. Um, although we've sort of adapted ourselves into a really sticky situation here. But I thought about like, oh, man, if we can frame the imperative of climate adaptation as an evolutionary, like inherently it makes sense, but but be just much more straight up about how climate adaptation is not just like the cool reputational saving thing to do. we need to do it for survival of our species. And this comes in as an argument, you know, for, I've seen it in, you know, with with journalists and and other commentators in that piece, but we're not really using it in healthcare um, from what I've seen. Um, Yeah. And the the last thing I'll say about that is with, with like healthcare leadership, that's something that we need to do a much better job about too, is helping them understand the communities that they're supposedly providing care for and and like i think your your comment about you know within the private institutions that you've taught 
having, you know, a, a large body of students who experience privilege. Absolutely. That's me too, you know, and that's a lot of folks. Um, and so how do, yeah, what, what are some of those um, really tangible ways that we can help people understand this? Um, appreciate yeah. that. You know, it's, it's really interesting. So I want to like comment on like the evolution piece. Hmm. I think about that all the time. And I think a lot of humans, we don't see ourselves as like an animal, even though we truly are. I think and you're so we right. can talk about the evolution of like horses, monkeys, cats, dogs, fish, lizards, right? But like whenever it comes to human evolution, people are like, well, we're not evolving. It's like, well, yeah, we're still evolving today. Like if we look at how healthcare is impacted, like thinking about the C-section and how we've changed human evolution to have smaller pelvises because we're now doing more C-sections. Well, it's like, okay, we're doing it in healthcare all the time. We need to figure out when the world's going on with like climate and how we're like either helping or harming our own evolution related to the climate, right? I, I just had a terrifying thought, you know, following from the C-section thing. I was, I'm a cardiac nurse by background. What if, and okay, nobody quote me on this here, right? And then like put out in public. What if um, just via the incredible like technological interventions of electrophysiology and cardiac catheterizations and cabbages and LVADs, what if we're contributing to the de-evolution of our own organs or end-stage renal disease like hmm yeah anyway. it's, it's really interesting right because like medicine like modern medicine what i would consider modern right like since like the 1950s so like we've only had like real one generation so it'll be just interesting to see what happens if we live long enough if the earth doesn't give us the flea treatment right of how human physiology and anatomy has changed in even two or three generations due to what we're doing yeah, that's astounding. Huh. Huh. Okay. I, I would love to shift gears a little yeah. bit here. Um, tell me about your research. I have been really curious to stumble upon um, some of the heat-related work, given that, you know, heat-related illness and just exposure to extreme heat is, is you know, the most... Um, well, I think it's the most, and you could correct me on this, pervasively experienced climate-related health impact. I know air pollution is sort of cited as being deadlier, but but I don't know. It's it's a big deal. Um, and you're working with a unique population, but probably your work could be extrapolated to to non-agricultural workers and, and that sort of thing. So I would love to just like hand the floor over to you. Take us uh, take us down a little tour of. Um, what you're learning and you opened it up a little bit for us, but tell us more. Yeah, so it was really interesting. So for my dissertation, I, this question of our team at Emory was working with agricultural workers in Florida. And my question was, well, what about like, we know, we know that this kidney disease, like acute kidney injury, this whole, this whole pathophysiology is happening in ag workers who are they're working in the heat, they're working very hard every day, but what about like the urban areas like Philly, Atlanta? What about the other workers? We've got construction workers that we see all the time. We've got landscapers. Um, we've got all these people that are working outside in the urban areas. And then you have also the urban heat island effect in someone's neighborhood where they're living. So like, are they being able to get cool when they come home from work? So my question was, well, what other occupations? And from my dissertation, we could go into the whole kind of how I got there with um, undocumented immigrants receiving 
hemodialysis, but we found that in our sample, of course, kind of the obvious, the construction workers and the landscapers, their health histories kind of matched this profile of CKDU. But surprisingly, we found that dry cleaners, like these women <laughs> that were working in what? dry cleaners in Atlanta. Yes. Um, because if you think about it, they're, they're around like really hot temperatures trying to clean clothes. And then these dry cleaning facilities don't have air conditioning. There's not um, air conditioning. And so we had out of our sample, we had a few women who kind of matched the CKDU profile. Mm. Um, didn't have hypertension, didn't have diabetes. Of course, like we couldn't, we couldn't like correlation doesn't equal causation, right? And we weren't doing histopathology studies to see what was wrong at the cellular level with the kidneys. But we found this kind of surprise occupation, but nonetheless, like my kind of bread and butter with climate change is heat, as you said, but we've been working with nurse practitioner and nursing students to train them. We did a first aid, um, trying to train the trainer. If we could, we know that in urban area or rural areas, sorry, we've had farm workers die. So I'm still adjunct faculty with the farm worker family health program at Emory. And every year we're down there, it seems that we have, um, and we set up clinics in cornfields, essentially we go to farms, wow. we're providing primary healthcare services to farm workers, but every year we're there. Um, I've been going for four years now, three, four years, four, but three, because we had COVID in there. Um, it seems like we have a farm worker die. So we, all of us have been putting our brains together. Like, what can we do about this? So this past summer, we trained nurse practitioner and RN students through a train the trainer model to then go out. And as they were working with farm workers to train them about heat related illness, what were the first aid measures? Because in some of these areas, like once you call 911, it could take 30 minutes for the ambulance to get there. It's so rural. Um, so we've been doing that. And then with Villanova, I've been dabbling more so. I always say I'm one of the few assistant professors who has been trying to get their research, their research broader. I feel like everyone else is trying to find that little hole narrow. Sure. This is what we're focusing on. But we're doing some lead exposure studies in Norristown, Ruth and I are, and some professors from geography and the environment. We're going to do a zero survey. So looking at blood lead levels um, and Latinx populations in Norristown, we've got a community partner. Um, we've got a couple of other studies that are cooking. I did some climate change diagnoses, looking at like diagnoses that were made with farm workers and did cluster analysis to find climate sensitive diagnoses, which was really cool. Something about the berry farms, um, was our findings that you have these vegetable farms and they had one set of diagnostic profiles and then your berry farms had a completely different one. So a lot of developmental exploratory work still, but eventually we'll get to the interventions if the KO1 is funded. So we'll see. Uh, my mind is being blown right now. Um, I, I mean, the I'm thinking about picking strawberries with my grandma in Little La Crescent, Minnesota. Like the applicability of what you're focusing on regionally it, I mean, it can be expanded across the entire planet because we are growing food. And well, unfortunately, less and less folks are, you know, have have a hand in that. We've transitioned so much to industrial agricultural practices, which now hearing this, I mean, I suppose it places fewer people at risk for heat injury. Um, but if we had better practices and better preventative measures, hmm, yeah, thank, thank you, Daniel. It, this also makes me think about folks who are in extreme heat for 
for other reasons. There's the occupational, but then there's the recreational aspect or for preventative health measures, we're encouraging patients to, you know, get X amount of, of exercise a day. And it's better if you're outside. Well, not, not always. Not always. Um, like green space is good, but if it's too hot and you're causing yourself to have a heat stroke, exercising, like we've done more harm than good. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be sure to link a few of the studies um, that, that you're referencing, a few of those publications in these notes. Um, excellent. Well, and one, one uh, resource that I stumbled upon on Twitter, just title, developing skills for real world nursing practice in the Anthropocene. Remind yes. us what the Anthropocene is and what was that work? I'm no longer affiliated closely enough with an academic institution. I couldn't even see it. So tell, tell oh, us I'll more. send it to you. I'll yeah, send please. it to you. Um, so the Anthropocene is basically the next kind of climate era that we're in. Um, all your scenes are um, dictated by like the mass extinctions, right? And we've entered another mass extinction due to climate change. And so the Anthropocene is the impact that humans are now having on our planet more so it used to be, you had like the mass extinction due to the, the asteroid that hit and created the crater down in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Um, and so there's all these questions from nurse educators about well, like, how are we gonna prepare students to deal with this? Um, and so this paper, I actually went to the Council for the Advancement of Nursing Science their um, biannual state of the science meeting in um, September and met Sarah, the first, the lead author on it. And she was like, please, like we could use someone with your mind to just give like a one over of what are the holes that we're missing? Because it's really interesting. There aren't that, there are lots of people interested in environmental health and particularly climate health, but there's not like one person like Whenever you think about it, like if you think about other, like you go to occupational health and it's like, if you're thinking about Emory, right? Like you can see these are the people that do occupational health work or at Villanova, you have your nurse educators, the ones that are um, doing the nurse education science. And like, I can point you to all the faculty, right? But climate and health is so new in a way that it shouldn't be new because all of the funding agencies have just now caught up to it. You can't point to a faculty and say, these are the people at the school doing climate change and health work. Um, it would be nice if you could, but I think in like 10 years, you will be able to, but right now all these people are wanting, there are all these funding agencies that are saying, we've got this money for climate and health. We've got this money for climate and health. And the pivot just isn't happening like it happened with COVID. Um, people are still trying to use their same methodologies to study climate and health, but we know that's not going to work. Just like we couldn't use the same methodologies with COVID when we had to pivot, right? Like you've mm -hmm. got to be innovative. Um, and so Sarah reached out and she was like, would you just give a one over on this paper? And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, very grateful to have worked with her. And it's, I always want to say that paragraph that was in there and I'll show you that was pointing people to the CDC's climate change and health will, that's where I always point people to because everyone's nice. like, where can we start? And I'm like, listen, if you're just trying to like add climate change into your already developed med surge presentation, pick one of these <laughs> disease, diseases, disorders that is on this wheel and the CDC website walks you through the connection, right? So the paper was really just trying to give people tangible tools or how to teach and prepare nurses for living and working as a nurse in the Anthropocene through this climate change lens. Um, it was a lot of fun to write. It was really easy. I've never done an editorial before. Nice. Um, 
but it was good. It was very good. I, yeah, I, w- I would love to see that more. And um, your your comments about the scenes and the extinctions made me think about Elizabeth Colbert's Sixth Extinction. Have you read that book? I've heard of it. I've not read it. It's on my uh, list. Yeah, on my list. it's it's excellent, especially with your comment related to uh, just evolutionary development. And if, if it, I think about that all the time, both in the concept context of animals i'm a i'm really a plant geek so the plant piece and the humans but colbert does a really nice job with that um she just came out in in the new yorker so it's accessible if you haven't used your you know your single free file yet um climate change from a to z the stories we tell ourselves about the future so i'll share that too it has some really lovely graphics um Speaking of which, I, this is just sort of an aside, but when we were talking about um, some of your modalities for making content um, enticing to folks and sticky for folks, I, I did notice that you had some really cool like graphic novel approaches on a poster that you were presenting recently. And I was like, oh, I've never seen that. Um, yeah, I, I, I not necessarily have to comment on that, but um, no, super cool. So it's yeah. really interesting that you say that. So my other, on top of being an environmental health researcher, uh-huh. um, I do this harm reduction work. And my good friend and colleague, Dr. Sarah Febres Cordero, the graphic novel was all her idea. Um, but we constantly are talking about this idea of climate change harm reduction. And it's like, how can we reduce the harm? So we know that climate change is happening, right? Like, unfortunately, I I have very little faith that we're going to be able to control our carbon emissions, right? So climate change is going to happen. And Sarah and I, we've done work around um, the opioid epidemic um, and syringe service programs and training service industry workers to respond to overdoses in the workplace, right? But we constantly come back to some of these innovative things that Sarah has done in terms of the graphic novel and then my interest in climate change and how can we combine them? So that's kind of like thinking into my five, 10 year plan would be harm reduction, like climate change harm reduction and how to reduce harm during the climate crisis that's going on. I love it. My like goosebumps, my gears are turning. Um, I'll follow up with you in five to 10 years. No, <laughs> yeah. no, it might be, I might be coming to you in two years. I'm like, okay, Shonda, how, okay, good, how, good, good, how good. do we do this? <laughs> my last special question for you. Okay. It's it's going to be a prompt. Tell me about your good luck candle. Oh, yes, my good luck candle. <laughs> so I my good friend Carolina, she and I were in the same PhD cohort and then it's like you know they have virgin mary candles and it's so like the tall a, ones like with one the, of the glass. Tall ones, yep with the glass, but it's got Stacey Abrams on it. And I know it's probably (laughs) cultural appropriation. Some people would probably look at it and would be so offended, but I light my candle whenever I need good luck. So I lit the candle for the first time during the 2020 election and got Biden elected. Mm. I lit it for the second time during my job interview at Villanova and got my job interview. My other interviews, I forgot to light the candle and did not get the, did not like, did not have good experiences, right? Oh. We got to light it during the 2022 <gasps> mid elections and we lost the house. And so I lit it for the day that my KO1 was going to study section. And 
I'm convinced that the reason I did not get a non-discussed and I get the opportunity to revise and resubmit is because the good luck candle was lit. <laughs> and also you're an amazing researcher with an incredible story to tell. Um, but I had to ask about the Stacey Abrams good luck candle. I was like, I love this so much. Um, we yeah, had a lantern cool. of learning at home. Yeah. It's so good. I don't, I have no idea where Carolina got it, but I'm, it's almost, it probably got like a third of the candle left. And I reached out to her and I was like, Carolina, I need you to procure another Stacey Abrams candle. Yeah. What are we, what are we going to do here? I mean, the, the future of our democracy depends upon it. Yes. You know, it's just like, okay, we're gotta, gotta use state. I was like, I know she didn't win Georgia this year. Um, for whatever reason, I still don't understand how people we're voting for um, Warnock more than Herschel, and he like got more votes, but then Stacey mm -hmm. lost. I'm like, what are this split ticket mess? But whatever. Um, so yeah, we'll get there. We all got to vote. <laughs> That's everything anyone takes from this. You got to vote. That's how we're going to end the climate crisis. That is. We're going to end this podcast on that too. Um, well, Dr. Daniel Smith, it is a true honor and pleasure. I'm giggling because I had so much fun. Thank you for this. This no, was no, a blast. No. Thank you. This was great. I appreciated it. Excellent. Well, keep up the remarkable work and I look forward to the next time that we are together. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Shanda Demarest and Dr. Daniel Smith for this fun interview. For me, it was good to hear the two of them talk about refreshed approaches to education and, frankly, to coping with climate and our environmental crises. Many thanks to you both. And special thanks to Dr. Shanda Demarest for contributing fabulous interviews for this series focusing on faculty members and committed educators in the School of Nursing Climate Challenge. It is inspiring and relieving to hear about the many approaches nursing faculty are taking to address climate and health, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And thank you all for listening. And as a reminder, the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast is 100% non-commercial. We charge nothing and advertise nothing. The marvelous nurses interviewed and interviewing are donating their time and expertise because they believe in and champion the work of these nurses committed to caring for our natural world. How can you help? Please tell others about it. Share with your nursing colleagues, family, and friends. Thank you. Talk to you next time. <laughs>